Hey, everybody. Welcome to a different church podcast. This is a different, different church podcast. Usually, if you're checking in with us on podcasts, you were hearing Hannah's message on Sunday, whether it's uh, recorded in the building or virtually these days. Uh, but this is something brand new that we are excited to try. It is a different, different church podcast. We thought that we would come up with like a Bible study um, like online, which is kind of cool. And this is specifically to be consumed via podcast. You can't get this content anywhere other than our podcast. So anyway, without further ado, welcome to Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> so Hannah, tell them why we decided to choose Revelation. Well, first of all, Revelation is definitely a scary book to a lot of people. Um, there's been quite a bit of what I would call fan fiction written about Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> like the, what was that book series that we, like when left we behind. were growing up? Yes, Left Behind. What a terrible book series. And my mom wouldn't even <laughs> let me read the adult version because it was too adult. But there was, yeah. you know, 20 versions of the, 20 chapters of the kids version. It was some pretty intense stuff. I, I actually worked in a Christian bookstore when it came out. And um, yeah, I never read one. Uh, so I feel like I shouldn't be a judgmental jerk, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they weren't great, but people are very fascinated with Revelation and they've always been fascinated with Revelation. And also, Revelation is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I'm very excited about it. Cool. I'm excited too. Um, we picked this one. We had a couple different things we could do. We thought it would be kind of tongue in cheek to do Revelation right now since everything is crazy in the world. It's um, the end of the world and we know it. <laughs> I feel fine. Let's just do karaoke the whole time. <laughs> no, we've just lost all of our <laughs> listeners. Uh, okay, so I know virtually nothing about Revelation. Um, I've kind of avoided it my whole life because I felt like it was totally useless and I didn't really care about the end times because I don't know that I really believe that it's an actual thing. Um, so I'm going to be like the stand-in for the doofus audience <laughs> in, because I am the doofus audience. Hey, don't insult our audience. <laughs> Good point. If you're a doofus and you're the audience, then you're on my side. If you're smart and you're the audience, then you, you can be Hannah. I accept this. <laughs> okay. So what we're going to do is she's going to kind of just take us through. Uh, I believe we're going to start with kind of like an introduction of just like what Revelation is and the world that existed when it was written. And then eventually we will start just going through chapter by chapter and hopefully you find it interesting. Um, I think that we all are looking for things to do these days and hopefully this is one of those things. Absolutely. And so when we go chapter by chapter, we'll try to do one chapter per podcast, although some of them are pretty in depth. <laughs> so, you know, we might get really, really excited and end up talking about a part of one for a while. But before we even talk about the actual Bible verses of Revelation, we need to talk about apocalyptic literature and we need to talk about Paul a little bit, which we'll totally tie in and um, the world that Revelation was written in. So if I say the term apocalyptic or apocalypse what does that mean to you Jarrett? so i think of like i just immediately think of revelation of course but i also think of apocalypse from x-men <laughs> yeah that's pretty good <laughs> which that was kind of what he was supposed to be i think that he was like a pretty uh formidable villain who was uh bringing about doom to everyone which is i think what most people probably think of when they think of revelation and apocalypse is doom and horrible absolutely it's like the end of the world 
or at least the end of the ordered world. So all of the movies and the only one that's popping into my head right now is the British movie where the world's end, where they have a drink in every pub and then it's the end of the world <laughs> at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to go to the Winchester and wait for the whole thing to blow over. Yeah, so we think of it and we instantly think that the actual world is ending and this category has been applied to revelation for a really long time but it's not super helpful because we have a different connotation of it than the people who were actually listening to the book of revelation would have had they would have not thought about the end of the world interesting yeah and that's like the first thing that we think of today right so what did that term mean to a second temple Jew? And by second temple, I mean, originally, of course, there was the first temple that Solomon built. It got burned down. And then they built another one. <laughs> so before that one got burned down by the Romans, um, there were a group of people called second temple Jews. So when we think of the term apocalyptic, these are the people that this book was written for. So we can't just say, well, whatever we want it to mean is what it means, because they would not have understood it at all. Now, yeah, yeah. Okay. There may have been some people who believed that at some point God would just abolish the space-time universe forever in some cosmic like explosion and <laughs> the world would not be reborn. There would be nothing but destruction, utterly destroyed. Um, there may have been some people that believed that, but th that was not the majority. So there's an old contrast actually in the Bible and in the Hebrew scriptures between prophecy and apocalyptic. So prophecy... We always think of prophecy in terms of God's action in the future, but to Jews, it would be God's action in the present. That was okay, what yeah. prophecy was. And right, apocalyptic we... is about the demolition of the world and the establishment of something different, but that is not what they would have understood it. Okay, say that again. So let me phrase it this way. Um, apocalyptic represents two Second Temple Jews at the time Revelation was written, what happens to prophecy under very specific historical and theological circumstances? Notably, huh, okay. if there's there's continued oppression, so of course the Jews are oppressed by Rome. They're being they're taken over. They have no say in what they're doing, um, and they are demanding that God do something about it. So apocalyptic <laughs> is what God is going to do in the present. Okay, gotcha. So it's also a literary genre, which in we think like left behind, but they would have thought it's it's basically a, a way of saying or a revelation of things that were previously kept secret. Okay, apocalyptic literature is that? Yes. So interesting. As an idea, if we think about apocalyptic, what is it as a concept? It's this idea that the earth is divided in two. There's earth, where we live, and there's heaven, where God lives. And so we only have the capacity to investigate things on earth, but God and perhaps angels or certain other angelic spiritual beings, they are the only ones who can investigate or move in the sphere of things in heaven. And they are the only ones who can explain what's going on in heaven to mere mortals. <laughs> okay. So what we need is like an angel to write this book for us and then we can figure it all out. Right. And when we get into Revelation, you'll see that John's having this vision of Revelation and he sees all of these crazy, very mystical things happening and he's trying to explain them, which is why we run into all kinds of contradictions in Revelation. Okay. Yeah. And it's because it appeals to our imagination, not our logic. 
that's one of the other like few things that I guess I know about Revelation. And I think I know this. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong. But didn't he write it like banished in a cave, like on a fever dream or something? P- practically. <laughs> we think that he wrote it on the island of Patmos where he had been banished after he had been boiled in oil. <laughs> um, but not hmm. he was not dead, obviously, because he wrote Revelation. So um, there are different ways that you can receive a revelation. So in the Bible, you can receive it in a dream. You can receive it in a vision. An example of a dream would be Daniel. Uh, in the Old Testament, he sees very apocalyptic things happening, and there's angels explaining to him what's happening in the heavens and how it relates to earth. Okay. So the mystery that is revealed in apocalyptic literature is always something to do with God, the plan of God, how it, what's going on in heaven, and how it relates to earth. Okay, yeah, and then he's trying to describe it as best he can. Right. And who knows if he's doing a good job or not. Absolutely. <laughs> so before we get to talk about John, the writer of Revelation, we have to talk about Paul for a second, which <laughs> may not make any sense because Paul did not write Revelation, but he did write two-thirds of the New Testament. And a lot of our end-time theology or our eschatology, which is the study of the end times, comes from Paul and comes from quotes that he wrote in the Bible. So one of them, and you can look these up on your own spare time. (laughs) We don't have time to read them all. But one of them is in Colossians 2, where Paul declares that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in the Messiah, which is, that's a typical Jewish belief that there is a mystery that God is intending to reveal at the right time. That is an apocalyptic uh, statement. There's some kind of secret and God is the one who's going to reveal it to humans. Okay. In Ephesians, Paul's describing his mission um, that God gave him the grace to bring the Gentiles into the riches of the Messiah and to make people see the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. And so that language is very apocalyptic because there's some kind of secret that's happening and God's going to explain it and Paul's going to explain it to everyone else. Now, of course, for Paul, the ultimate apocalyptic event already happened and it was that Jesus came died, was buried, and was resurrected again. So for Paul, a lot of people say that Paul believes or is waiting for some kind of future extravaganza (laughs) when it comes to the end of the world or something like that. But for Paul, the pinnacle was already accomplished when Jesus came and died. Jesus was the full disclosure of God's secret plan that had been, and he even uses this language in Romans, the plan that had been kept secret for generations. It's very apocalyptic language. Gotcha. Yeah, I can, like, I understand why people would be interested in that type of writing and talk because man, how cool is it? You're part of this secret that's like about to be revealed and like you're smarter than the next guy because you know a little bit about what's going to be happening and like the world around you is like, um, it's not exactly what it seems. It's almost it's almost like the beginning of like Harry Potter or Star Wars or something. Like exactly. the world's bigger than than I perceive it to be. And here we go. I'm about to get the goods. Exactly. And one of the things that's shocking, um, it, we don't necessarily think it's shocking because we're two thousand years removed. But for Paul and for the Jews who would have encountered Jesus or the story of Jesus, Paul is saying that God had this secret plan from the beginning since Abraham and Jesus was the answer to that plan and this is how God is going to save the world and nobody expected that they were like get out of here that's a terrible secret plan 
We don't. We don't <laughs> want someone to overthrow death. We want someone to overthrow Rome. Right. Right. Yeah. So against that backdrop, um, we have some language in Paul that has been used in a very misleading way. So one of the ling- one of the words which perhaps you've heard is the second coming of Christ. Sure. So the word is parousia and actually it means presence, not absence. So when we think of coming, we think of someone coming from a long distance away. If I'm like, "Oh, you're coming over," that means you're driving to my house. It's going to take you like an hour or less if you speed. Uh, maybe someone's on the other <laughs> side of the globe. There's a, a long distance away that they have to come from. But that doesn't actually make sense to the Jewish understanding of heaven and earth in that time. So in apocalyptic Judaism, heaven and earth are actually not separated by a great distance. They are not at different points on like a spatial continuum. <laughs> they are, it's more appropriate to think of heaven and earth as like overlapping and interlocking dimensions, which is super sci-fi and very cool. It's so cool, yeah. And so it's not as though Jesus is... Co- it's, wait, hold on. It's the upside down. It is the upside down. <laughs> yeah, except for instead of it, the up, it's not the upside down, it's the right side Yeah, up. except we're in the upside down. Humans. Yeah, yeah, We're yeah. in the bad yeah, place. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... Oh, fork. Yes. <laughs> Forking shirt balls. <laughs> can we say that on this podcast? I, we can. I, and, it, and only people who know know what we just said. <laughs> Although I guess it's not that uh, it was, it's not very subtle. Okay, it's a great show. If you don't know, and you don't watch The Good Place. You should watch The Good Place. That's a PSA. Yeah, it's yeah, do it. So, when we think of Jesus coming, it's not as though he's arriving from a long distance away. It's that his royal presence is going to appear. So it's the same kind of language that you would use if an emperor was coming to visit a town or something like that. You would say there he is present. He's appearing. Um, and in first John, we have this, when Jesus comes, it's not when Jesus arrives, it's when he appears. That is when we can suddenly see him. Whereas before we had a veil over our eyes there, we couldn't see into the upside down because it was a different dimension. We couldn't access it. I think I've got it. It's, uh, we just signed Tom Brady. The goat is going to be in Tampa here pretty soon. Yeah, but like, don't include me in your we statement. I do not like the Bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody else listening to this, hopefully you you love the Bucks. Or and, or, uh, and hear me out. You can like whatever sports team you want because all people are accepted <laughs> here. That's true. That's true. Except, never mind. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> uh, support your local team. So yeah, the goat. He existed already. He was just somewhere else, and now he's coming here. Right, but. Even that doesn't quite explain it because he was in New England before and now he's coming to Florida as though yeah, from a okay, long distance point. away yeah. where it's not as though he's in the room and we just can't see him. Right. Okay. But that's the context that we're saying heaven is actually right here. We just can't access it. So when Jesus appears, especially in first Thessalonians, we have this passage where people are caught up in the air to meet Jesus. We're going to meet him in the clouds. And of course, in my Pentecostal tradition, that is like, we have so many songs about that. (laughs) We're going to fly away. We are going to meet him in the sky. I don't know how the Methodists feel about that, but it was a big, it was a big theme in my life growing up. I think, yeah, I think most traditions are pretty excited about leaving here and going somewhere else. Right. But 
that's really not what the passage is saying, at least in my opinion, um, and in the opinion of quite a few um, scholars who have studied this. It's not like we're not going to be raptured into the air, like just sucked out of our car driving down the street, leaving our car to crash into a wall or something like that. The point of this entire passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, if you read it, is the comforting of mourning people. They're very sad um, because people have been martyred. People are dying. And Paul is trying to comfort them and let them know that those people who have died and the people who are still alive, when the Messiah appears, they will together be in this new age that he's going to usher in. And so when we think of the word parousia, when it appears... It's invoking this scene of a king or an emperor paying a state visit to a city or province, which would be very familiar to anyone who lived in the Roman Empire. And of course, as the king approaches, all the citizens come out of the city and they meet him and then they escort him back into the city. There would be no point in going out to meet him so they can, what, have a party on the road? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) And this is the same thing. It's the same language, the same imagery we see for Jesus. When he appears in the air, we're going to meet him. We're not just going to hang out in the air. We're going to escort him back to his rightful place, which is king and ruler over the entire world. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I can see how that would be confusing, but it's just it's taking the metaphor of like meeting the king who's on the way. And we're going to just do that with Jesus. But instead of meeting on the road outside of town, it's more grand and more mystical. I don't know than that. Exactly. Yeah. So we're going to meet in the air and then come back. Right. Although I don't know if it's more mystical. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly more mystical than reading in the road, but it's definitely not more mystical to think of it that way than to think that we're actually just like shooting out of our cars and homes like <laughs> <laughs> like what bullets or something just flying into the sky into heaven (laughs) that that's what they should have called the book not left behind bullets in the sky to heaven (laughs) it sounds like a country song coming on (laughs) i like it so paul's entire theology has this sense that god's ultimate future where the world is put back to right and everyone is redeemed that goal that end point that's going to happen has actually come backwards into the middle of history with Jesus. So before we all knew at some point there's going to be something. God's going to do something at the end. But instead, God offered this redemption in Jesus in the middle of history when no one expected it. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Paul's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so God has already declared to everyone that he has dealt with sin and death. So in Jesus, sin and death and all of this has been dealt with decisively and God has summoned the world the entire world to obey this by faith in anticipation of the day when Jesus appears again and is escorted back by the faithful into his rightful place as king now that all sounds fine but who cares like if Jesus is king like so what we say this all the time it's in our music it's in the bible it's like it's in purple and gold embroidered banners on in the insides of churches. <laughs> Why is it important to say that? It's because if Jesus is king and Paul is saying this and John says this in Revelation, that means somebody else isn't. Oh, yes, Caesar. 
Yes. So if Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar is not Lord. And that is a very political and treasonous statement. So when Paul was converted, the Roman Empire was like two generations old. Um, So before there was the Roman Empire, there was the Roman Republic, which of course ended with the death of Julius Caesar, where he's murdered and he says, Et tu, Brute? (laughs) Probably not in such a weird voice. (laughs) And then his son took over the empire um and he julius jr (laughs) yeah well his name his adopted son was named octavian and he Ah. went by the name caesar augustus and he was the one who was ruling when jesus was born and then of course following augustus there's all of these different people and there's they had this whole ideal of the empire so do you know any of the ideals of the roman empire what they propagated uh maybe um tell tell me them and then i'll be like yes <laughs> freedom yeah i totally knew that one justice uh-huh yep peace yep absolutely and salvation and snacks oh <laughs> nope definitely not snacks dang it unless you were a citizen in which case maybe all the snacks you could want <laughs> so this may sound familiar because this is pretty much the message of Jesus, right? <laughs> okay. Freedom, well, uh, justice, yeah. peace, and salvation. Freedom, justice, peace, salvation. Yep, cool. Okay. Uh, these were themes like they were on the mass media of the ancient world. So they didn't have TVs <laughs> or podcasts, but they had coins. They had statues, poetry, songs, speeches, temples. Like they literally hammered this stuff into everything. They had celebrations and... Um, festivals and all kinds of stuff dedicated to these gods and goddesses dedicated to the emperor Um, and the emperor was known as the savior of the world which we say jesus is the savior of the world and that takes on a different meaning when we think about that somebody else already had that title yeah yeah it's one thing to just be like to say that and be like oh that sounds lovely but it's another thing whenever somebody else already claimed it and then no, 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 not that guy, who, by the way, was somewhat powerful and could, like, have you murdered. Exactly. And not somewhat powerful, totally powerful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rome was known far and wide, even though their slogan was the peace of Rome, for Pax brutally, Romana. brutally crushing anybody or anything that rose up against them, which, of course, we see in Israel. The Israelites rebelled in AD 70. Rome came in, crushed them, dispersed them, burned Jerusalem and the temple to the ground. So Rome had this like military machine and everybody knew from Spain to Syria was the Roman Empire and like a little bit beyond. Everybody knew what Rome was and what it stood for. And their announcement of Rome's themes was called the good news. (laughs) The gospel. The gospel of Rome was peace, freedom, salvation, justice. Wow. And so then we have Jesus and Christianity that comes along and they say there's a different savior of the world and we have freedom, peace, justice, and salvation. And one of the really interesting things is that the emperor cult was the fastest growing religion at the time of Paul in the Roman Empire. Like people literally worshipped the empire. Okay. uh, The emperor, I should say. And the emperor, (laughs) this is another fun tidbit. This is not in my notes. Basically, when the emperor died, whoever it was, let's say Augustus dies, his son is going to say that he saw him rise, ascending into the heavens 
to be accepted among the gods. And because the dead emperor is a god, what does that make the current emperor? Son of God. The son of God. (laughs) So when Jesus says, I am the son of God, that's not just blasphemy to the Jews. That's treason to the Romans. Interesting. And also, uh, I can't help but notice the uh, ascension to heaven uh, idea. Exactly. I feel like that's going to that's going to pop up somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> um, and as far as Rome was concerned, like pretty much anywhere in Rome, dedication and like worship of the emperor, that was obvious and not controversial at all. Like it was totally accepted that the emperor was a god or the son of a god. Um, and that he had peace and salvation and justice because obviously Rome had conquered the whole known world, at least the world that anyone inside the Roman Empire would have known. So it's in that world that Paul's declaring the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he was raised from the dead and he was the world's true Lord. Interesting. So, yeah, <laughs> it's very exciting stuff. It's the just New Testament. Like, yeah, to, to not like to not know that and to not understand that maybe that's like the purpose of the book. <laughs> like, no wonder we get things so crazy and out of whack. Absolutely. And I think that the Bible is accessible to so many people. It can clearly be misinterpreted, but it's it's shallow enough for someone who doesn't know how to swim to wade in. You're not going to drown in it necessarily. But if you want to go deep, like you could never get to the bottom of what is actually in the Bible, especially books like Revelation. Yeah. So when we think of Revelation, this is the world, what we just discussed, where Paul was writing, this is the world that Revelation is being written in just a a few years later. So there's all kinds of books in the Bible. Romans and the historical books and some of the prophets, they primarily address our intellect or our mind. There's other books like the Psalms or other poetic writings, and they kind of engage our emotions. So the Psalms are supposed to be sung with a group or their songs, Psalms of Lament, and they're engaging our emotions. Revelation actually is written specifically to appeal to our imagination. Oh, cool. Which is not something we normally think of when we think of the Bible, yeah. <laughs> especially if we've turned it into like a list of rules or some kind of guidebook. I don't know the last time I read my guidebook like an imaginative <laughs> account. <laughs> like if you get something from Ikea and you're like, yeah, well, this this table leg should go in here in the corner, but I imagine that it attaches to the other table leg. <laughs> and then we will quickly imagine that the table falls down. <laughs> but in Revelation, it's literally built that way. It's structured for us to use to see these images in our minds and go wild with them. Um, it's not just speaking in visions, but in images, it speaks in figurative language, not just logical reasoning. You cannot logically reason your way through the book of Revelation. You will run into so many contradictions. Hmm. Interesting. For example, in Revelation 8, 7, John says all of the green grass is burned. And then only one chapter later in verse chapter 9, verse 4, he says the locusts are instructed not to harm the grass. So if all the grass was burned... How yeah. is there grass, grass left for them to eat? Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's all kinds of stuff like that in Revelation where you're supposed to imagine what it would be like for this to happen. Man, and I just like, nobody tells you to approach scripture like that. Right. 
Yeah, it's like, nope, it says what it says. Well, and it's interesting to think, like, Revelation, if you just sit down and read it, it's basically like you're entering into a dream world with God. Cool. And then discovering that in this dream, you have this crazy, miraculous message from God in the dream. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So... One thing I do want to say about Revelation before we talk about the apocalyptic writing Revelation is that there are different sequences of events in Revelation and they're not linear. So there are three movements kind of in Revelation where we move through the bowls and the trumpets and we'll get into all of that. But a lot of people think that first it's this sequence of seven things that happens and then it's another sequence of seven things and then it's another sequence of seven things as though they're linear. Whereas for John, I really feel like he is describing things from different angles. He's describing the same sequence of events over and over again from different angles so that we really get the picture and the full spectrum. That's cool. That sounds like a, um, I'm sure there's been like a bunch of movies like that where an event happens and the first 10 minutes are through this character's point of view and the next 10 minutes are through that character's point of view, but it's the same thing. Exactly. And so when John is writing, he's using apocalyptic. So we talked about apocalyptic as a concept, but there actually is a literary genre of apocalyptic writings that uses some specific things. Like it's very symbolic. It uses names and numbers and descriptions as a code, essentially, so that outside readers, particularly enemies, they would have no idea what's going on. But inside readers, people who are initiated, they're going to understand the implications of the message. So here's an example. When I say Babylon, so obviously in Revelation, Babylon is the main enemy of God. What could that possibly stand for? Ooh, okay. Babylon, the main enemy of God. So if I'm tracking with what you've been saying so far, uh, I would say Rome. Exactly. But you yes. can't write a book and come out and say Rome is an enemy of the one true God because they right. will burn every copy of it. Um, and there's there's other apocalyptic literature that's happened, you know, in other cultures. Like there, at some point, there was a writing in by someone in China under communist China who wrote a scathing review of the government, but used completely fictional places and names and people and made the whole thing up. But it was still a little too obvious. They knew that he was writing about them, <laughs> so they went and arrested him anyways. But that's what they're trying to avoid. Gotcha. So in Jewish apocalyptic literature, God is always pictured as transcendent and fully in control of history, even when the situation is bleak to the humans. So remember, we can only see what's happening on earth and God sees what's happening in heaven with these angelic beings. And so we need somebody to explain to us what's happening in heaven because we can't access it. And so the revelation that's being given to a seer or a mystic or a prophet, this is the message of hope and salvation that we find in Revelation. Hope for God's people, judgment for God's enemies. And this is a theme throughout Revelation. Even though it looks bleak to you right now, there will be hope for you, but judgment for the enemies of God. Interesting. Okay. And it's not just that the prophets had this revelation or that John he had a crazy dream. Okay, great. <laughs> Blame it on the pizza, whatever. Wake up. No big deal. It was literally his duty, his calling, his entire life's purpose 
to share this revelation with the people of God. Um, And I would say also that readers generally understood that these promises of hope and of the world being put back to right and of judgment on enemies, that they understood it wasn't going to happen immediately. Okay. They're, all of the promises in a lot of apocalyptic literature, but especially in Revelation, they're expressed as part of this coming judgment that God yeah, is going to do, but it's not it's immediate. Hope. Yeah, it's like hope for the future. Yes. But in the meantime, and this is the key that you will get, I feel like people don't get this when they read Revelation, but it's hammered over and over in almost every single chapter. In the meantime, before the judgment happens, God's people are to remain faithful and persevere in the face of suffering. They have to remain faithful. They have to persevere no matter the suffering. And it's repeated like more times than I can count in Revelation. Very cool because that has a lot to do with right now. Exactly. And John is this seer, this visionary. So he refers to himself as a prophet, which is why I touched on prophecy at the beginning of our conversation. Because we think of prophecy and we think predictive. There's something going to happen in the future. But that is not what's happening here. What's happening is it's prophecy in the Old Testament sense, meaning John is proclaiming a word from God addressed to the people. He's not saying here is exactly what's going to happen in a millennia or, you know, a million years or whatever. He's saying this is your present situation and it all feels bleak, but I have a message from God for you in the middle of this situation. Yeah. So instead of Nostradamus, he's like a social commentator kind of. Yeah. You say that. Yeah. Cool. Like one of our best writers or like, uh, you know, somebody who writes for the New York Times or, or something that's like, hey, things are really crappy right now, but here's this. Right. Except when we read Revelation, it's going to be really depressing. (laughs) So he wasn't like good at being. The message is it sucks, but you have to persevere. Keep the faith. And if I can boil it down, that's what it is. It sucks. Keep the faith. (laughs) It sucks. The whole book. Keep the faith. Cool. Okay. Then, okay. We, We kind of jokingly tongue in cheek chose this for this time. But maybe it's perfect because right now it sucks. Keep the faith. Absolutely. And so just a couple of notes about Revelation as a book. So we say Revelation actually identifies its author. He says his name is John. There is no conclusive proof at all that it's the same John who wrote the book of John in the New Testament. Now we can say it's possible because it certainly is possible, but we don't know (laughs) if that's true or not. Um, We are going to refer to him as John, of course, because he says, my name is John and I'm writing Revelation, (laughs) but it may not be the same John. Um, In Revelation 1-9, it also speaks of John being banished. So he's on the island of Patmos. He's been banished there. That speaks to his social status. Um, He, if you crossed Rome, you died. There was no way around that unless you were from a very wealthy or like famous or high status family. So John, the implication when he says he's banished, he's the only disciple who was not killed, but instead boiled in oil and then banished to an island, is that he came from a very influential family. It was probably written, the book of Revelation, 
in around 80, 94 to 96, which is the end of Domitian's reign, he was very awful. (laughs) He liked to do horrible things just like Nero did to Christians. And there were all kinds of martyrs and people being burned alive and eaten by animals and all kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff. Oh, I just dropped my notes on the floor. (laughs) That's okay. And because we're in the 21st century, I have my notes on my iPad. So now I think I broke my foot. (laughs) (laughs) i need my own revelation (laughs) yeah yeah it's worse than dropping pieces of paper on your foot i guess huh yeah absolutely so it's also possible that revelation could have been written in the 60s when nero was persecuting but i would say a lot of people believe it was written in the 90s i was going to mention nero earlier when i think of paul i think of nero are they like the same time frame um somewhat okay not exactly, but they can overlap a little bit. Okay. So I don't know remem- why. I just, I feel like he was like, when I think of the, the emperor killing the most Christians, I think of Nero. Yeah. I don't know that Nero actually killed the most Christians. He was just very uh, creative <laughs> with his murdering. <laughs> okay. And he didn't just kill Christians. He killed a lot of people. Yeah. And is he the one who, who played while Rome burned? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So we say probably written in the 90s. And then the there's the revelation is actually a letter. Remember that above all else. It's being written to someone. It's not being written to a vague general like the Christians in the empire of Rome. It's being written to seven specific churches, which we see at the beginning of Revelation. And these are churches in the Roman provinces of Asia, which is like modern day Turkey. So there's seven cities that are joined by this road system on a mail route. So John is writing very specifically to seven different places on a mail route in Rome. Okay. And the overall structure is that Revelation is portraying this horrible truth that evil exists and how awful it is and how terrible it is, but still emphasizing that God and God's hand is always present in his work and working to accomplish God's purposes on behalf of his people. Jesus, then then this comes up in Revelation again and again too. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. Jesus is the true Son of God. Jesus is the Lord of the earth. And Satan has already lost the war. Now, Satan doesn't know this because we see in all the ways it's played out in Revelation where he's fighting and fighting and he has the armies of darkness. But Jesus has already won before the battle has even begun. All Satan can do is imitate and pervert what God does. And in Revelation, we see that God's faithful people, the suffering servants that come up over and over, they're wondering because they're looking around at the world going, is it even possible? Could God even save us from this? And Revelation reminds us that Armageddon actually is not the final defeat of Satan. It's this desperate act of defiance by someone who's already defeated. So just Hmm. because there's a skirmish at Armageddon, it's not Satan's last stand. Satan already lost the battle. Like the, the treaty was already signed. There is no more war, but Satan refuses to admit this. And so the message for people who are suffering, who are weeping, or who are afraid is to endure it faithfully because with God, they will prevail no matter what. It sucks. Keep the faith. It sucks. Keep the faith. 
I think that's the title of the first episode. <laughs> yeah. Although we, I guess we should put Revelation in there somewhere. Okay. If we ever like package this and sell it in stores for millions of dollars, that'll be what we call it. Revelation. <laughs> it sucks. Keep the faith. Yeah. It sucks. Keep the faith. And I will say also that when we start talking chapter by chapter, um, we'll go in depth as far as we can in a podcast, but there's so much more that you could study and learn. And so a lot of what I will be saying comes from a book called The Bible for Everyone, Revelation. It's written by N.T. Wright, who is a very famous scholar and theologian, um, and I think he is fabulous. So if you want to go deeper, you can check that out as a resource, um, and we'll kind of hit the main highlights and the main points in our podcast. I just signed up for something. Uh, our, our buddy... Pastor Tommy from Watermark shared um, N.T. Wright is giving away like a free um, course on Udemy and it's mm -hmm. normally like 150 bucks and it's, it's it's for some random book. I forget which one. Uh, I think it's Philippians or Colossians, uh, something like that. I was going to say Philippians, so maybe that's what it is. Uh, it, yeah, it is because it's about joy. Um, yeah, so I just I just signed up for that. So if you're interested in like learning more stuff apart from just Revelation, uh, check that out. He's got some some free stuff that's normally like 150 bucks. Yeah. Um, are you saying that there's other parts of the Bible other than Revelation? <laughs> At least one. There's I know there's one other one. <laughs> yeah. So that I mean I feel like that was a lot for an introduction, but there's really no way to just jump in without having that background of what the Roman Empire was like and what apocalyptic literature even is before we start talking about the metaphors. I feel like we we cracked it. Like that's like we're done now, right? That we don't need to <laughs> we figured the whole thing out. It sucks. Keep the faith. Well, you figured out the slogan, but do Dang we know it. how to do it? Good point. Yeah, now we got to <laughs> read the we got to read the non um it's instruction, but it's not like, you know, it's imaginative instruction. Yes. Cool. All right. Well, I'm ready. Well, uh, I'm excited for the next one I, next week, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, cool. Hopefully this was uh, fun and I know I learned something and hopefully the listeners did too. Yeah. And if you want to continue the conversation, you should follow us on social media, Diff Church on Instagram and Facebook, and also our website. Yeah. DiffChurch.com. Thank you for hanging out with us. <laughs>